Quarantine Spook Show. I'm Kyle Carezzi. Uh, the Spookiverse has opened once again. After a nice well-earned vacation. resting and freaking out, freaking out about the painfully slow rollout of the vaccines at the end of the day it's things are run by people uh, who don't give a shit about people they service, regardless of the economic system. At this point, capitalism and communism might as well be Coke and Pepsi. But I digress. I did have one dream, uh, about Star Wars. Uh, that was Anakin, St- Anakin Skywalker uh, and that part of Revenge of the Sith uh, after he kills all those Jedi kids except afterwards he goes to a goes to a party with all the characters from those prequel movies not at like a Star Wars house it's just a house suburban house with beige walls and all that. And no one knows that Anakin did all that fucked up shit. At one point, Obi-Wan Kenobi shows up and he's just like, hey, Anakin, are you alright? And I'm just like, oh yeah, I'm fine, fine, I'm fine. So Anakin's just like freaking out during the party, pretending everything's cool, but he's all nervous and sweaty eyes are bloodshot and everything. And then during the dream, my partner's uh, at the party. And there are like, Anakin, can you stop being so moody and help out with the party? I'm not sure why that was worth bringing up, but it seemed necessary, I suppose. of spook title submissions this week. So what I'll be doing is uh, pulling random books and flipping to random pages and then selecting uh, horror story titles from uh, that way. And then once I pick a title, uh, the stories will be improvised from there. If you'd like to submit story titles, you can uh, email them to quarantinespookshow at gmail.com. 
time, I got some stories to tell. Alright, this first book is going to be uh, Knitting for Dummies, which is a true treasure trove of absurd entries. Alright, this first story is called Buttons on Your Band. Jeremy always had a, he was an avid collector of a variety of buttons. It started off modest when he was a teenager. He would just buy them from Hot Topping and whatnot, or uh, get them from local bands that were coming to town and all that. as he got older. He would go to zine fairs and concerts and get as many buttons as he could. Eventually learn how to make he learn how to make them himself. Started to add them on to all his clothes and backpacks. Until eventually, he started to dedicate all of his buttons to one specific uh, denim vest that he wore all the time. He couldn't wash it as often as he liked to, what with all the buttons and whatnot. probably hundreds of buttons by the time he hit 35. It was a large denim jacket, or denim vest rather. It used to be a denim jacket, but he cut off the sleeves. And they could jingle and jangle as he walked. All the surfaces of the buttons clanging around on each other. comic conventions and zine fairs and concerts. People would often say, shit, that's a lot of buttons. And he would be all like, yeah, man, totally. 
person, uh, poignantly asked him, uh, hey, do you, uh, believe in that many things? And then Jeremy was just like, I don't know, man. a lot of pride in all the buttons he had on his denim vest. His shining moment of this accomplishment was when he was interviewed for a button enthusiast fanzine. And he talked about how his uh, button collecting began and how he grabbed buttons from all over. And every button had a memory. He described it. He was like a living tapestry of his entire life, as well as the lives of others. Now, the person that interviewed him for this uh, button enthusiast fanzine, he definitely looked at Jeremy with a bit of admiration. Just like, wow, man, so many buttons. buttons than you. And Jeremy was just like, oh yeah? Pretending he wasn't interested. And the interviewer was just like, yeah man, you know, I mean, totally got mad respect for all of your buttons and all. But this guy's button collection is just like a living, breathing art piece, you know? galleries or to see anything so hardcore. And Jeremy was just like, oh yeah, that's, that's cool, it's cool. Uh, so where this, where's this uh, guy at? Uh, I had a curiosity. It's like, oh, I don't know. I think he uh, lives in Minneapolis somewhere. And Jeremy was just like, oh, okay, nice, nice, nice. And then Jer Jeremy remembered that he had some cousins uh, who lived in Minneapolis, and he was invited to a wedding that summer. So in that moment, he thought to himself, like, ah. Oh, this mad button collector is actually in Minneapolis. Maybe I can make a little detour and check him out. So eventually he goes to his cousin's wedding, a lovely ceremony. Hangs out with his family, you know, catches up with the people who are important in his life. 
He did get some looks for wearing his button vest to the wedding, but he virtually never, never took it off unless he was sleeping. talking to his family members and stuff. They were just like, shit, Jeremy, you look good. You look 27. And then Jeremy was just like, ah, oh, thanks. But secretly, uh, deep down, he wondered if he was aging well because he never quite grew up. But then again, who does at the end of the day? track down the guy who the button collector that lived in Minneapolis his name was Artemis and he worked worked at a used bookstore so Jeremy uh, went to the store uh, hoping he'd be in working walked into the bookstore, uh, he immediately recognized uh, the button collector. How could you miss such a collection of buttons? thought he was badass and cool with his uh, button denim vest. But this guy, Artemis, he had a button suit. He had a denim blazer and some denim slacks. Uh, a regular shirt. And then a denim tie. of his pieces of denim. A button was attached. You could barely see the denim, but... Jeremy marveled at it. He felt humbled. He thought he was the... He thought he was the most badass button collector on this side of the Mississippi. Apparently he's met his match, and he had nothing but respect for him. So he walked up, up to him while he was working, and then Jeremy was just like, hey man, and then Artemis looked up and was like, yeah, and then he stopped. He looked up Jeremy up and down, saw his buttons, saw the look that Jeremy had, and all and admiration and then he immediately understood and Jeremy just said I heard about you man
Artemis was just like, yeah, yeah. You're the guy with, you're the guy with the vest. And then Jeremy was just like, oh shit, you know me? And then Artemis was just like, yeah, man. Anyone who knows Buttons heard of you, you know? You're one of the guys, you know? I thought I was one of the guys until I saw your fucking dapper suit. I mean, goddamn. And there's Artemis was just like, oh, thanks, man. Thanks, man. So eventually Artemis goes on his lunch, and uh, him and Jeremy are just like uh, hanging out outside the bookstore, smoking cigarettes, talking about buttons and their collections. They're going over each other's buttons and talking about the stories about where he got each button. And Jeremy was talking about this one button. He's just like, yeah. I got this button when I saw the band Pig's Knees. Uh, it came through my town and played in my friend's basement. But they only put out one EP and then they broke up like after three months but fuck man it was a good show I'm never gonna forget Pig's Knees and then Artemis was just like yeah man that's what a lot of people don't get you know these buttons are time capsules they're, they're memories uh, they document things that don't last and aren't meant to last and really shows the depth of the world and the depth of people and the souls of people. And then Jeremy was just like, yeah, man, I couldn't agree more. And then Artemis said, do you? And then Jeremy was just like, do I what? And Artemis said, do you agree? And Jeremy was like, I lost, I lost track. What? Agree with what? And Artemis said, Do you agree that buttons contain the souls of people? And then Jeremy was just like, Well, yeah, man, totally. That's why I'm so into it, you know? I mean, some people have stamps, I guess, or comics or whatever, but I got, I got, there's zines, and, but I got fucking buttons. How many do you have? And then Jeremy was just like, how many what? And Artemis was like, come on, dude. How many, how many souls do you have? Jeremy thought about this, and he was just like, soul? I don't, well, I don't have any literal souls, man. I got some memories, some, some well-crafted, like, artistic buttons. But, like, I don't, not, not like, literal souls. Artemis was just like, oh, well, okay, never mind then. And then Jeremy was just like, well, no, wait, what do you mean? And then Artemis was just like, well, I thought, you know, you're a button collector and all, but I thought you were a, a real button collector. And then Jeremy was just like, hey, man, I'm as real as fucking anyone, all right? Ask anyone who knows me. I'm, when it comes to buttons, I'm about it. 
I said, alright, well, I guess, alright, I guess you just haven't done it before. You know? Collect, collect souls? And then Jeremy was just like, I don't know, like, what do you mean, what do you mean collect souls? I don't understand. Was just like, alright, follow me. They go back into the bookshop and uh, behind the counter and pass the doorway with beads hanging down. That represented the image of Frida Kahlo for some reason. And they went down the stairs, uh, into the basement, to another section of the bookstore, but something more out of the way. There were some candles lit. Uh, the carpeting was like a deep velvet, velvet maroon. And there were some skulls around. And the books looked really, really old. And then Artis, Artemis was just like, alright, check this out, dude. And he opens his lapel and see some buttons on the inside patched in. Jeremy saw, looked at them and thought about it. He's just like, well, if you wear buttons on the inside, you can't show them off. And then Jeremy took a closer look and he realized what Artemis meant. These were literal souls trapped in buttons. Had screaming faces. Some of them was a barrage of colors, like from some abstract painting, or just like a splash of colors from a memory or something. Some had a scenery, like a childhood bedroom or a park. portrait of someone that they might have loved. But looking at these buttons, Jeremy understood that they contained the souls of people. And the most vibrant thing about them souls uh, revealed themselves in the image of the button. And Jeremy looked at it and he, was just like, he just said, you... beautiful than this. And then Artemis was just like, I know, I know. Again, my collection of real buttons are pretty humble, but, you know, I'm working my way up. And then Jeremy was just like, well, I'll how, how? How did this happen? How do you do this? And Artemis was like, well, I have a, I had a mentor who taught me this stuff. Um, you want, I can teach you how I did it. And then Jeremy was just like, yeah, at least show me. I guess I'm, I'm curious. Jeremy didn't know what was compelling him to more about these soul buttons. He didn't like the part of himself that wanted to know this dark art. 
collection to be a representation of life itself, so... He figured he owed himself enough to at least learn. another part of the book, uh, the bookstore room, with some uh, old printing contraptions. Uh, they had a screen printing station. They had a letterpress. They had a sticker maker, and they had a contraption uh, to make buttons. setting up the machine, he was just like, alright, now it's kind of complicated at first. Like, it has similarities to a typical button maker, but it's a little different. Alright, what you gotta do first is, uh, place your hand right here. Put your palm on the surface right here. And then Jeremy was just like, okay, okay. Actually, hold on. Lift your hand up. And he grabs a really old book and then puts it where Jeremy Jeremy's hand was. And then Artemis said, "Okay, now uh, now put it down." circular button area. And then attach a needle to it so it's sticking out. And then set it on a lever. This might hurt a bit. Are you ready? And then Jeremy said, yeah, totally. And then Artemis quickly lift up, lifted up the lever and then uh, slammed it against Jeremy's hand. The needle sticking to the back of his hand. started to scream. The needle started to draw blood, and the white paper inside the button started to become red. But it wasn't just a... the pain wasn't just a physical wound.
feel himself go numb a little bit. He started to scream. He felt like the blood was being drained from him, but he was bleeding profusely. started to fade in color, and he looked up at Artemis, who was just giving a grim smile. on the ground, his body lifeless. Artemis lifted up the lever and then detached the button. The part that was white was still red, but it started to fade into something else. Artemis laughed and watched Jeremy's soulless body lay motionless on the ground. transform into a set of multiple images. It just looked like a rich tapestry of colors and patterns. And then Artemis just said, what the hell? nearby and then he put the button underneath and he looked at it and then he saw in tiny microscopic images every single button that Jeremy collected throughout his life was displayed on that one button so that the small button itself was just like a rich tapestry of all the memories that Jeremy held dear was a menagerie of Jeremy's life experiences. Artemis removed the button from underneath the microscope. And then attached it to the inside of his lapel. And he stared at it for a bit, and then he said... Huh, it's not a, not a bad button collection. And then he closed his lapel.
Alright. This next title is from uh, the third issue of uh, the comic Hate, uh, published by Fantagraphic Books in around 1990-1991. Uh, and uh, this story title is from the uh, letter section in the back of the comic. And this next story is called Underground Railroad Tunnels on the Upper West Side. Hunter uh, wasn't easy. Especially if you hosted a YouTube show and a Twitch stream. found a immense difficulty in uh, hunting for ghosts. When he was a kid, he always saw himself as gifted with the paranormal, even though everyone else thought he was a fraud, but he didn't care. He didn't pay attention to any of those naysayers or what have you. Roger just followed that uh, Shane Smith advice, where it's just like, if you just want to film something, just film it. At first, Rogers just started to recreationally uh, go to abandoned places with a camera. And then he'd invite some friends who also believed in goats, ghosts. stuff online and on Tumblr and all that jazz. And then people were getting into it. People were getting, were snorting what uh, Roger was cooking up and, and all that. And they started investing more gear, some uh, heat radiation stuff and some electromagnetic whatnots. paranormal conventions that talk about his trade. Uh, some naysayers would ask, well, hey, how does, how does all that stuff work? And then Roger would just be like, no, nah, I don't know. 
know, Roger always felt comfortable at uh, paranormal conventions. It was rare that anyone questioned uh, what he was into, you know. He would meet other ghost investigators. And they'd be all like, yeah, it's really spiritual, really uh, keeping in touch with uh, everything humanity has to offer. And then Roger would just be like, yeah, man, yeah. sort of moans or white noise that he uh, captured on the show. Some people accused him of it being staged, but Roger was just like, nuh-uh. And then that was the end of the discourse, because no one really cared whether or not it was real or not. Because his viewers believed, and that's all that mattered to him. Roger was strolling through this uh, one paranormal uh, convention in Minneapolis. And then a dude comes up to him. He's just like, hey, you're, uh, you're Roger Femur, aren't you? Roger made a deliberate effort uh, not to be smug. And he was just like, yeah, I'm fucking Roger Femur, all right. Was like, oh fuck, man, I love your show. You know, I missed the panel that you were talking at, but I, you know, I really think all your, all your, your, you're very forward-thinking when it comes to like ghost investigations and stuff. And you know, it's, you know, like it's just like all that shit's in the walls, man, and no one really gets that. But you're trying to like figure it out, and it's hard to prove these days. But like one day we'll get the technology to do it when like all the quantum stuff starts to, you know, come to light and whatnot. And you're just like, you're the man. You know, you're really fucking going for it. I hope you fucking get there, man. And then Roger was just like, yeah, uh, thanks. Really, uh, it's always nice to meet a fan. And the fan was like, yeah, yeah, but hey, man, how come, how come you've never been to the, uh, the Underground Railroad Tunnels in the Upper West Side? And the Roger was just like, the West Side of what? And then uh, the fan was just like, New York, man, you've never been there, you know? spooky horror stuff is happening like in little pockets of New York. I mean, so many people move there and then all the people like feel things and do stuff and then people are remembered or not remembered and then people want to be remembered if they die prematurely or unfairly and then want to haunt people just so they know how they died and how they lived, man. You know, you should check it out. And Roger was just like, yeah, I mean, we're, we're already uh, scouting new locations for our next uh, season of the show, so it'll be, yeah, really cool to check out. Yeah. And then the fan was like, yeah, man, you gotta do it. It's just like that mental hospital in, like, Pennsylvania, or, like, the Shanghai Tunnels in Portland. You know, it's just like all the all the cool kids go there and investigate and to bring their white noise machines and their recorders and heat radiation or just hang out with a video camera, man. 
Well, you, should, you should do that too. I want to see you experience it because I'm afraid to, you know, go over. I think that'd be. I'd freak out, man. You know, I'm fucking terrified of ghosts. Even fucking terrified of alive people, you know? So I couldn't fucking handle it. But if you went there, I think that'd be really fucking cool, man. I would love that shit. And Roger was just like, yeah, I'll sleep on it. Roger did sleep on it, and then he decided to go to the underground uh, railroad tunnels in New York. He had a crew with uh, two other people. village uh, to hang out for a bit and then uh, Roger gets really distraught of how much it's changed and it's totally unrecognizable to what it used to be in its vibrant uh, artistic and countercultural history even before its countercultural history just like fucking East Village man that's where the shit happened and Roger felt that shit or he thought he did vibe disappeared, you know. That's why Roger always, when he moved into a new house, he repainted the walls and redecorated, you know. Shooing off any old vibes, any old hang-ups from any people that previously lived there or people who died there and then just made the space his own. That was his own personal philosophy, uh, that a lot of ghost shenanigans could be curbed if uh, people just redecorated uh, a bit more thoroughly. That was just him. He wrote books about it. Uh, go to rogerfemur.com for more info about all his uh, shenanigans and insights to things and whatnot. So anyway, Roger, uh, Ian and Curtis, they're setting up their gear and their cameras. seclusive, seclusive uh, entrance to the underground tunnels. And then Curtis seems nervous, and he's just like, alright, so are you sure that no fucking trains are gonna come out or anything, or gonna hit us while we're on the tracks and whatnot? And then, uh, Roger's just like, nah, don't worry about it. It's, I researched the shit out of it, it's fucking good. We honestly got nothing to worry They start filming, do a little uh, pre preliminary intros, just like, oh shit, the underground tunnels from the uh, west side and whatnot. It's gonna be fucking hardcore, man. Hardcore, man. Biggest request to head to this place from all of you, the fans. So let's fucking head in and check it out. 
So did they go in? It's dark. Even if you didn't believe in ghosts, it'd be pretty spooky, you know. There are also some other people wandering in there. that what was that and then some dude in the distance just like fuck off man and then it's just like oh no it wasn't a ghost they got deeper into the tunnels uh, where there are less people walking around they can hear distant subway cars flashlights and stuff they had an angle with their show that they started to they tried to make it like the Blair Witch Project or Marble Hornets or whatnot trying to compete with shows like uh, Three Dragons and whatnot but they did have a stylistic thing that was unique to them to their credit Just like keep yammering on about ghosts and whatnot. He didn't know some history about it, you know. About people who died there, people that went missing, ghost trains and all of that. They filmed some of the graffiti there. And it was just like maybe the ghosts inspired people to draw this graffiti man or whatever Roger's been doing this long enough where he doesn't get uh, too nervous or afraid. He always feels the nervousness, he feels the fear, but he always gets better at handling it, or at least more accepting of coexisting with it. But in this case, it uh, starts to get to him a bit more. There's some uncertainty and doubt that flows through him as he walks these tunnels, as he steps on the tracks. He's still yammering about uh, ghosts and stuff and trying to find spooky noises and whatnot. He tests out the heat radiation machine and the uh, electromagnetic doodad and little white noise machine to like get like sounds or that make words and whatnot, which he doesn't even know how it works, but still he tries to figure it out. felt he was going on autopilot a little bit. Often the way shows would go is he would play like the white noise machine for instance and 
try to get it to interpret words and whatnot, and then the machine would say words, and then he'd be like, oh shit, that word means something. Oh shit, the word was, uh, train. This is the train tracks, man. Oh shit. And as he went through these, uh, gimmicks during, uh, his filming of the Underground Railroad, something in him felt off. It was a gnawing fear that he wasn't quite exposing. of the show, beneath what he was pursuing on the show, or at least what he told himself he was pursuing. You couldn't call it a presence, just a deep, unnerving darkness. It was some sort of external hunger of sorts. Not a hunger out of uh, maliciousness or anything, but just an exposure to this feeling is uh, elicited an obvious uh, torment and dread. Again, not for maliciousness, but just a dread that comes from uh, reality of pure misfortune, like encountering a storm. So eventually he's uh, testing out a electromagnetic thing and uh, he sees a little blip on it that he could uh, convince himself that it was some kind of spooky ghost thing or something or a human figure or whatnot. But then he stops and he puts down the electromagnetic thingamajig and he's just like, guys, do you feel that? Ian Curtis uh, still doing characters for a show, just being like, oh yeah, man, we were really feeling it. It's really spooky. And then Roger's like, no, but for real, though, you feel the darkness. And Ian and Curtis stopping their tracks, and they knew what he meant. Like, yeah, we're... It's, it's something. Nothing that we can record, but... There's something here. Rogers was like, yeah, we can we can get out of here. We can just like uh we can abandon the episode, I don't care, but we just gotta we gotta get fucking going. I got a bad feeling in my gut and we gotta leave. So they're going back up the tracks from whence they came. It seemed like they were walking uh for a while. Longer than they thought. said, oh, I thought it was this way. And then Curtis said, no, no, it's that way. And then Roger said, are you fucking kidding me? Are we lost? And then Curtis said, shit, man, I think we're lost. And then Roger was just like, fuck. He felt this external dread. And he started to panic a little bit. I gotta get out of these tunnels. I gotta get out of these tunnels. They kept the cameras running and 
like sitting on the ground at some point. Sitting, waiting. They didn't know what they were waiting for. Since the dread that overcame them was so much that they couldn't, they couldn't walk anymore. Not from exhaustion, but just like... Uh, existential pointlessness, for lack of a better phrase. The specific feeling would be like, it's like they were being digested. They're sitting there. They're looking at things through their camera. They decide maybe to rest and then when they wake up try walking again. But the cameras only had a limited battery, as was as was the rest of their gear. And then it started to die off one by one. Last thing they had was their flashlight. First, Ian just wanted to cut it off at first and just keep it off to save the battery. And then Roger was like, no, leave it on. I don't feel uh, good in the darkness here. Ian and Curtis understood and they kept it on. flashlight just kept fading and fading. And its last little beats, it was... Ian Curtis and Roger didn't know what to do. And then the light went out. Roger, Ian, and Curtis were never seen after they went into those tunnels. They were supposed to rendezvous with a producer in the city, but they never showed up to the meeting. The search was carried out. Uh, apparently, a lot of people get lost in the tunnels. Eventually, they find some of their gear in uh, one of their cameras. Look, I'll pull up the footage of the camera. It's just, uh, all the footage is pitch black. Alright, uh, this last story is from, it is a book of uh, Hindu art and architecture. Uh, it was from uh, a library uh, that I uh, checked out uh, at the beginning of March, and then uh, this thing happened, and I haven't uh, turned it in yet. But uh, anyway, this next story is called Astronomical Association.
was all Sydney ever wanted. Just to look up in the stars in space. Her two most passionate uh, interests were astronomy and anatomy. She loved the complexities of the human body and the brain complexities of the world, outside the world. It was like, she liked to dive into an ocean within herself and dive into an ocean outside of herself. That's truly how she gained gratification of living. technology and whatnot, but she was just like, nah, I'm pure research, you know, she spent her whole life looking at the stars, and that's all she wanted to do, she loved talking about it, she loved talking about the star systems, and planetary systems, galaxies, and all the unknown oddities in space. She saw it as uh, the raw material of living. Not for just the earthly things that humans occupy themselves with. the telescope and the research facility. She's the one who primarily uh, is in charge of staring up into space and documenting and doing research and whatnot. While many of her peers were uh, more so focusing on rocket technology and weaponizing and militarizing uh, space exploration technology. She just wanted to keep it all exploration. She heard this one story of uh, when the International Space Station was being built and developed. It was during the Cold War uh, when the United States astronauts and Russian astronauts uh, boarded the station together and they agreed that uh, no earthly matters will uh, take up space in the station. She thought that was so profound. Whatever happened to that romanticism of space exploration from the 80s and early 90s? Pure wonder to wonder what else was beyond us. 
the things that matter to us were so trivial, even though that was what made them beautiful. Even her own pursuits of looking up in the space, she knew it was just like a little thing she was into that not everyone was into as much as her. And her fascination with space didn't matter in the end, but she was okay with that. okay uh, when one day she was manning the telescope she got her work done uh, for that part of the day and then spent the tail end of her work day just uh, staring up for recreationally looking around she didn't go home until about dawn but she was totally cool with it She was looking at the stars and the planets. She saw this one distant meteor that seemed to get closer to the sun and the earth and the moon. And when she tried to zoom in and get a closer look at it, uh, it flashed and it stung her eyes. rush too and she was just like all right i think it's time that i go home I need to rest my eyes relax so when she went back she was having uh, some quizzical dreams uh, about meeting people she's never met ever since she saw that weird meteor thing that she's never seen again. at work started to change as well. She was scribbling in her notebooks and drawing weird designs and whatnot. She always loved doing anatomical drawings, but she was drawing different types of anatomy that she didn't quite uh, register. She would just decide, okay, I'm going to draw, and then she'd get into it. finished, she would uh, get out of her trance and then be like, oh, I didn't know I was drawing that. She didn't know how to describe it other than an alternative anatomy. She thought about it. She was like, why, it's like alien. why am I drawing like alien stuff? She was looking through all the glyphs and patterns and Fucking, could I make 
contact with aliens. So when she would go to work, she would look for this meteor or any, any sign of uh, alien contact or anything like that. And as obsessively as she, as she looked, she couldn't find anything in the like. All she had were her dreams and her trance states when she would uh, draw manically and whatnot. of her co-workers. She went to a hospital to get a checkup to see if something was up with her, but she knew, like, no, it's fucking aliens, man. I think I'm... They're trying to make contact with me, contact with me but my brain can't handle it. I don't know. Maybe it's just because I stare into space all the time. Maybe I understand something that maybe other people don't, but I think... Yeah, I, I really think I'm onto something. I think they're trying to contact me. After the initial set of checkups, uh, her doctor met with her. Uh, very solemn, uh, very well rehearsed in preparing to deliver bad news. Uh, to recognize that this is bad news, but in a way that he's done before. Trying to keep a sense of composure. And she said to Sydney, There's no easy way to say this, but found a tumor uh, in the inside of your skull. Um, it's pretty severe. We can try to do surgery, but it's a long shot. And Sydney was like, tumor? What do, you, what, do you, what do you mean a tumor? And the doctor said, well, it's, uh, you know, it's kind of uh, started like a bit of an onset epilepsy, like all these episodes you're having. Uh, it's from this thing. No, it's not. It's not from no. It's not from this tumor. It's just like the aliens are trying to contact me. You know. They, you know they're trying to send signals to my brain and whatnot. And I think that the tumor might be a result of that because maybe my brain can't handle the radiation. I don't know. I don't know. But it's something bigger than both of us. Is what I'm saying.
Sydney's last concern was uh, her own health and mortality. Stumbling upon this contact beyond the stars. But she still goes for the surgery. And to the surprise of medical professionals who knew about it, the surgery was a success with next door to no side effects uh, on the brain. The one exception is Sydney kind of had a strong idea that she died and was in the afterlife, but she was still in with people still alive. She wouldn't share this detail with other people because they knew people wouldn't believe her, but she knew what she believed, uh, to say the least. So she went back to work, excited to go work the telescope again. But there lacked a specific excitement in staring up into space. It, uh, it lacked a tangibility, because nothing seemed, uh, nothing really seemed as real to her as they used to. She didn't know where she was or what afterlife she was in. She thought maybe she was in some sort of, uh, some sort of waiting room to meet the aliens. Or, perhaps, uh, she did die mid-surgery and then went to the afterlife. Which is really just her own reality, but, uh, without registering it as a reality, peculiarly. Now, her co-workers were concerned about Sydney, but she still got her work done as she always did, you know. It's, uh, it's hard to call people out when they get all their shit done, you know. Not, not as much ardency as she used to, but she still waited on the aliens, or still want to learn things about space. Eventually she has a meeting uh, with the heads of the Astronomical Association that were manning the research facility that she worked at. Yeah, Sydney, how are you doing? Sydney's just like, oh, I'm, I'm great, you know. How, how are you? And then they uh, cut the formalities and we're just like, so, you know, we're really happy that you recovered from your surgery well um, and that you're back to work and things have been good, but it has been affecting your research. Um, it's not quite as fact-based as it used to be. You know, we're kind of looking for, like, empirical, empirical study of uh, space phenomena and whatnot. Uh, so if you can get back to that, we can save us from making any tough decisions or, you know, about your stasis here. 
sense. And he was just like, well, what do you mean? I don't, under I don't understand. And then uh, one of the heads of the association was just like, well, you know, you're, it's all very, like, rambly. And you have a lot of, like, theoretical stuff here, which is, uh, you know, which is very encouraged. This is, this is a research facility, but, you know, we really want, we mainly want raw data. Uh, and then a lot of these theories aren't really grounded in anything. Like, you have the ideas, but not, like, any of the work to, like, back it up or anything. You're talking about things that, like, no one's, like, discovered or anything, or nothing's that you've observed personally about uh, what's happening in space. So I don't really know why you're, you know, why you're going out on a limb. Like, this is, like, the stuff of science fiction. Sydney was just like, well, no, the uh, aliens contact me in my dreams, and they uh, tell me what's up about space and stuff. So I feel less compelled to, you know, like, stare out in the space itself, because they can just give me a good link to it, and it gives me, uh, it gives me an idea of things to look for through this telescope, but we don't have a powerful enough telescope to find anything cool, really. So, you know, I'm just kind of, like, jotting a lot of stuff down, things that they tell me, um, and I think it could be useful for you, you know? I'm sure when we, uh, you know, when we develop the right telescopes uh, a couple generations later or whatever, we might, uh, discover that a lot of these things are true, because that's what the aliens are telling me, you know? This concern the heads of the association. Because, uh, their staff, uh, their emphasis on their staff was to just go for just like the raw data about a uh, space phenomenon and whatnot. But Sydney kept going for kept kept submitting these theoretical things that were the stuff of science fiction and uh, to try to describe what's happening in space with no uh, observable evidence to it. And they talked they talked to her several more times about it. gets to the point where they feel that it's uh, infringing on the research of the facility itself, so they decide to let her go, uh, and this dev devastates Sydney. She has her own nice telescope at home, but it doesn't compare to the one she used at the research facility. She didn't have access to the stars in the same way that she used to. And eventually the aliens stopped coming to her in dreams. Eventually Sydney retires early. She did do some, like, tech jobs, like another, uh research facilities and stuff, but nothing that compared to just staring into space all day, literally. So she has an early retirement, and then dies a few years later. But then in the span of 30 to 50 years later, one by one, all the theories that she saw in dreams and whatnot were being proven true. One by one.
Mouse Quarantine Spook Show. I'm Kyle Caressi. 